So I really think that the idea is to understand your financials more than anything. I think that's going to be the key because when you start talking to people that are going to want to back you, they're going to want to know that you know what you're talking about. It's great that you know your idea. Uh, it's great that you have passion for your idea. But if you don't understand the long-term effects of what you're doing, if you don't understand the business that you're in, if you don't understand like those basic ideas, then no one's really going to want to you know, provide you with money because they're not going to trust you with it. So. This is Devin Miller here with another episode of the Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the CEO and founder of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com and we're always here to help. Now, today we have another great guest on the podcast, John Reimer. And uh, Don is, um, began his journey as a systems engineer, uh, taking systems and engineering class at West Point when he was, or um, I think was, uh, had to define the 21st century, got into environmental science degree, um, and his interests are always kind of switching away from um, gunpowdered weapons to other alternatives. And we'll get into a little bit of as what he's doing today in that regards. Um, then he graduated um, from West Point and went to Fort Campbell for a very period of time and went into the infantry, went to Iraq, served there for a bit, came back, got all the military, um, worked for uh, Natural Science or National Center for uh, Research for a period of time. And then uh, where he, he got to legally grow marijuana. So that's always an interesting one. And then uh, a buddy called up to, or a buddy called up and uh, indicated that there was a good opportunity. I think it was in Stevens Transport but you can correct me where I'm wrong, uh, went to work for oil and gas for a period of time. And then uh, today is uh, pursuing a prototype that he's been working on for quite a while that uh, moves us away from uh, uh, gun, or guns using powdered weapons to uh, an, an alternative. And he'll dive into that. So with that much as an introduction, welcome on the podcast, John. Oh, uh, no. Thanks, Evan. I appreciate it so very much. Yeah, it's quite, it's been quite the journey for sure. All, all good journeys are. So I walked through kind of just as a quick high-level overview of kind of what your journey's at, but take us back a little bit in time to when you were in, at West Point and studying and kind of how your journey got started there. Yeah, so <clears throat> we had a class and the basic you know, general project for that class was designing something for the 21st century warrior. And, you know, my classmates had all sorts of different ideas and ended up not picking this one thing. Um, I think I picked reactive armor or something like that and don't quite remember the whole story, but the idea that I gained from this class really kind of has stuck with me for the past 30 years as I date myself here and, and what I've done. But the idea is, is that how can we go from using gunpowdered weapons to what will be the next generation of you know, future weapons platforms for the military movement? forward and always been something that people have stayed away from just simply because the technology hasn't always been there or the ideas just never kind of like came to fruition or there's always been other things to do I mean to be honest with you when you look at the military industrial complex uh, the manufacturing of ammunition is a billion dollar business and there's no reason to stop it unless there's something better that comes along and so I think that that's really kind of where 
I started was that how can we transform this industry the way that not only do we hunt, we uh, we wage war, we do the things that we need to do in order to kind of like move forward, right? And I think that with the introduction of the space force, you're not going to be able to use gunpowder weapons in space. So how would you be able to defend the the galaxy Star Wars movie or Star Trek or whatever? But yeah, I mean, that's really kind of where this kind of idea came from was that as we move forward and put ourselves in position to, you know, explore the world, put people on the moon, what are we going to do? I mean, is there a need to defend ourselves? What are we going to do? And so this idea just has been brewing in my head for 30 years. So now let's dive into because 30 years is a long time to jump over. So you went to West Point, you kind of got this, you did the class, you know, you kind of um, graduated, you know, kind of had this idea of percolating about how you might, you know, transition away, what that might do. But then you put that aside, so to speak, or put that down for a period of time. And went to Fort Campbell, went in the infantry, and then yep. retired. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And so, really, just kind of just set it on the side, and you know, just kind of let it percolate in my brain. And I think that that's one of the the major lessons when it comes to the way that I process information is sometimes you just got to be patient. And I think that this idea has been just sitting in the back of my head for that period of time. And I've learned a lot of things in my experiences, whether it's been you know in the military itself. Um, you know, actually how we run operations, what soldiers are looking for, what are the expectations of their weapons platforms, what do they want done? I think those are some lessons that I can take with me that I learned to be able to apply to, to this situation. Because to be honest with you, soldiers are picky, especially when it comes to their weapons. And they mm-hmm. want them a specific way. They want them to operate all the time. And they don't want to fiddle with messes. And they want to be able to, as they say, reach out and touch somebody whenever they want. And I think that that's kind of what, what I bring to part of the table and being able to really kind of put something together that's going to be a, a quality platform for, you know, not only soldiers, but hunters. I mean, I hunt. Um, so it, it's, it's just one of those things that you really just kind of sit back and, and you open up your, your gun closet or wherever you're at and you go, is there really something better that's out there? And, you know, what, what would it look like? And I really now, think that's kind of where it started. So now diving into that, so you so you were or served in Iraq, you kind of, you know, get that experience and, and you, you know, got the understanding of kind of what, you know, whether soldiers are hunting or what, you know, what uh, people that use guns on a, on a regular basis would want and, you know, kind of let that idea percolate. So now you came back from serving a tour in Iraq and kind of where did you, where did you go from there and kind of. Yeah. So it was just really working and, and putting the money together. Um, so, and that's really just been kind of where I'm at. So along the way, I worked for the national center for natural products research. I did, I, I grew marijuana. It was the only legal marijuana field in the United States at the time. And that was actually a really cool job. Basically what we did was that we took non-native species of plants and they, the pharmacologists were trying to develop them into, you know, usable drugs uh, for the pharmaceutical industry. So it was really fun. It was exciting, but I wasn't able to make the, uh, the cash that I so needed. How did, you, how did you initially get into a job where you basically grow marijuana or legally <laughs> grow marijuana? There are plenty of Yeah, people. so it was, it was a weird thing. So I was actually at Ole Miss to VA and the, the job had kind of just opened up and my mom's a botanist. Um, my degree's in environmental science. So I really kind of had the, 
the background of being able to, you know, grow things, a kind of a green thumb. I got my own greenhouse in the back right now. There's no marijuana in it just for anybody to know. But um, yeah, I just went out and saw the head horticulturist and he was like, you're hired. I mean, I kind of could walk, walk through the place and say, you know, this is what we need to do. I originally just started like repotting plants and watering them. And over the course of about three years, I kind of grew into the head horticulturist once they realized that I didn't know what I was talking about. Um, and that, you know, kind of start on that pathway to work through all that, you know, like pharmacology, government, um, kind of rigmarole, right? I mean, there were so many regulations and rules for what we were going to cut. We used roots, we used flowering plants, we used seeds just to develop different things. And it's weird how stuff like this can develop because on a Russian licorice plant, there's this super sticky stuff on the outside of the seed pod. And that is actually what they reverse engineered to create the sticky substance on the back of post-it notes. So it's, it's weird stuff like that, that really kind of just kind of, you know, put you in a position to go, hmm, this is really so, cool stuff. Now you did that for a few years and then what made you decide or to get out of that or kind of where did you go after you uh, grew marijuana for a few years? Yeah, well, it, it was not the cash crop that everybody thought it was at the time. Um, so, you know, in ring, being able to kind of like take my invention to the next steps and go from really kind of what was in my head to putting it down on blueprints, I needed, you know, some, some, basically money. And at that time, right, I got a call from a friend of mine that was like, hey, we have some room in the transportation logistics supply chain industry. And it, do you want to join? And I was like, sure, why not? Um, I was going to basically double my salary and I was going to be able to, to do the work that I in order to kind of further what my actual goals were. And that was kind of like getting this idea into reality. And so I've done that for the past, you know, 15 years. I ended up working um, with my friend and then we started working in the oil and gas industry. And that's really just been kind of what I've done, just kind of working my way up the scale director level and supply chain world, but always taking that time to the side and say, hey, I can work on this on the I can off time. And everybody has been super patient in being able to deal with my mad scientist ravings my kids get annoyed when i start talking about electromagnetic fields and um you know beams and things like that they're just like they just start shaking their head and walk away so so no i think that definitely you know is a, is a fun journey to, to take now as you're going along you know so you, you you take the journey you kind of get going on that you know and you, you've done now the military you've got into growing marijuana you've got into oil and gas now how did that you know getting into oil and gas with a friend and then you're always kind of percolating in the back of your head. Hey, I've got this project. I want to do this. And kind of, this is where I'm at. Now, how did that transition to kind of where you're at today? I mean, so did you or work through other jobs? Is this your full-time gig? Is this a side gig? Which I always say side gig is really just a second full-time job because it takes yeah. as much time, but kind of bring us up to a little bit to where you're at today. Yeah. So, so right now it is still a second full-time job that I do. Um, so I'm actually hoping that, you know, October, 2021, my full-time gig, uh, that's my, my goal date to be able to, to make sure everything launches off. But 
um, that period of time was really spent in this journey of being able to go. I mean, I had to teach electrical engineering. Um, I had to teach myself about, you know, materials engineering. Uh, I had to research all these articles. And that was a lot of what I was doing in that, that journey to get to where I am. And that was really kind of why it was, has been a side gig for so long of being able to, you know, just really make sure that, you know, what I'm putting together is going to be something that's going to actually work, um, you know, historically, you know, this type of idea has, has existed for, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years. Uh, you know, people have put different things together. And so I really kind of wanted to learn from their mistakes, uh, kind of understand where their limitations were. How could I push the envelope? What, what would be the things that would allow me to be able to, you know, create what I created? And, and that's kind of where I'm at. And, and so I'm hoping that October will be the end date. That's what I'm telling the family is that October I'll be free and clear and be able to do this full time. And uh, they're, they're kind of excited for me and I'm, I'm excited for myself. So. No, that definitely is exciting. You know, kind of fun to dream about it, so to speak, fun to kind of think where we see where things were going to go out, but then to actually have the rubber, so to speak, hit the road and start to actually pursue it and to go after it and, and bring it to reality always make or gives it a much uh, or much realer feel. So that's certainly exciting. So well that kind of brings us to where you're at today. And so now we'll we'll transition and we kind of talk about, you know, how you got to or what your journey is, how you got to where you're at today and a little bit of where things are headed out in the future. We'll jump to the the two questions I always ask at the end of each podcast. So the first question I always ask is along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made and what did you learn from it? The worst business decision that I ever made was not trusting and verifying the people that I'm working with. Um, you know, I, it, especially with with what I'm doing, being able in to, to talk to people about what I'm doing uh, and and getting their feedback. Um, there have been some people along the way that you know, you know, I presented this idea to them and said, "What do you think?" and I mean, they were real quick to shoot it down, uh, really kind of like, you know, put that negative energy in there and, and it just kind of put you in a position of going, man, that that's not a good place to be. Uh, you start questioning yourself, you kind of, you know, pushed me back maybe a year, year and a half, to be honest with you. And then the other people that I talked to were, you know, hey, this is a group and come to find out they're doing something on the side that they're trying to, to take from you. So it's, it's been a little bit of that. Uh, so I've really just been hard to trust anybody with what I've got going on because it is something that's completely different and unique. And I really just kind of want to keep it close to my vest as, as much as I possibly can. So, um, you know, the important stuff I I've been able to, but, um, you know, I've, there, there've been people along the way where I've had to, you know, cut ties with and, and just say, God, that was a horrible decision. It just put me on a bad path, you know, negative energy. I think the the best business decision that I made is just to be patient. Um, you know, I could have, you know, rushed this out, you know, about four and a half years ago and put myself in a position to where actually the the actual design that I had didn't work. Um, and it would, didn't, wouldn't, wouldn't have worked the way that I would wanted it to. It was not going to be something that was going to be viable in a long-term situation. I would have put myself where I had like really just kind of shot off really quickly and then faded away. And I, and I appreciate the idea that, you know, I took time to make sure that everything was right. Dug in my eyes, crossed my T's, really just kind of looked at it and said, you know what, even if it takes me, you know, 
five or 10 more years, that's going to be okay because it's going to be the quality that I want and that I think people expect. No, I, I think that is definitely, you know, kind of a, a mistake to make along the journey, but also a great one to learn. So it sounds like, you know, and figuring out who to trust and how to trust and what not to trust and all of that is also always, I think, a something that people have to figure out along the way, because it is hard, you know, who do you tell, who do you share it with, who's going to be on your team and who's going to say, that's a great idea. I'll, I'll run with it, or I think I can do it even better. And so I think that that's always, you know, a great, a great list learned along your journey. So now we'll jump to the second question, which is if you're talking to somebody that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what'd be the one piece of advice you'd give them? Oh, there's so many to give someone. So I really think that the idea is to understand your financials more than anything. I think that's going to be the key because when you start talking to people that are going to want to back you, they're going to want to know that you know what you're talking about. It's great that you know your idea. Uh, it's great that you have passion for your idea. But if you don't understand the long-term effects of what you're doing, if you don't understand the business that you're in, if you don't understand like those basic ideas, then no one's really going to want to, you know, provide you with money because they're not going to trust you with it. So I've been fortunate enough to, to get some help along the way. And, and really, to be honest with you, convincing my family and friends, you know, give me a little bit of cash here and there has always been difficult simply because I, you know, there was kind of an expectation that they thought on their end that, you know, it was just a request from a friend and I didn't have to provide them with, you know, important information like financials. And so being able to sit down with them and kind of like throw out a five-year plan and say, this is where I'm going, this is what I'm doing, and this is what I expect. And, you know, I think they're very appreciative of that being that open with what your financials look like and not trying to, you know, pull the wool over anyone's eyes and saying, I need X amount of money for this shell or for, you know, Y component or anything like that. I think that that's, that's been always helpful and being able to say, I'm going to spend this money and it's always going to be earmarked for someone, for something. No, and I, I like that you hit on there a little bit of, you know, kind of being open and transparent because I think that too oftentimes we want to overinflate it, you know, we want to make it sound better than it is so that it entices people. And most of the time, all that does is set it up for failure because then you have unrealistic expectations it's no longer, hey, this is the time frame. It's here's a risk. It's kind of, oh, we're all going to be millionaires in the in you know twelve months. And it's like, right? Probably, you know, for most businesses, it's not the case. And contrary to what you see on TV or Shark Tank or the movie, it's not that quick of growth. And so to say, hey, here's realistically where we're at, what we think the potential is, what we where it's going to be headed, and then you know even being a bit conservative, such that then when they when you either hit or meet or exceed expectations or you're on expectations or that they've at least been properly set. So I think that, that's definitely some great advice. Well, just as a, a reminder, before we wrap up this episode, for all of you that are, uh, all the audience, we are doing the bonus question. We'll talk a little bit about intellectual property. So if you want to hear that answer, stay tuned and listen to um, John's top, or a top intellectual property question. Otherwise, as we wrap up, thank you again for John for coming on the podcast. It's been fun. It's been a pleasure. Now, for all of you that are listeners, if you have your own journey to tell, um, feel free to go to inventiveguest.com apply to be on the podcast two more things as a listener one make sure to click subscribe in your podcast player so you know all of our awesome episodes come out and two leave us a review so other people can find out about all of our awesome episodes last but not least if you ever need help with patents trademarks or anything else feel free to go to uh, strategymeeting.com grab some time with us yeah so 
Now with that, now as we've wrapped up the normal portion of the episode, it's always kind of a fun one that we get to switch uh, switch gears a bit, and uh, you get to ask the question and I get answered as opposed to how the normal episode goes. So with that, I'll turn it over to you to ask your number one intellectual property question. Yeah. So what what is the best way to choose between being able to put your intellectual property on a delay? Because uh, I forget the terminology, you know, so you can either put it on a delay for a year or just go ahead and, you know, bite the bullet and just put it in the in the patent office day one. I mean, wh- where do you decide on that? Yeah, I think what you're referring to and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, you're basically, you know, is uh, looking or referring to a provisional patent application. Correct. The provisional patent, patent. Correct. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. So, and just for the listening audience, basically a provisional patent application is one where you can submit it. It saves your, or gives you data invention, kind of saves your place in the hall and line for up to a year while you're going out or why you decide what you want to do. So the, you know, the, and I just to reiterate your question now with that background, I think, you know, the question is, is when should you go for a provisional and when should you get that one year placeholder versus when should you just go for the, the full patent application? So I usually answer this question with, with the kind of the opposite of, what or you know when would you go or when would you go for a provisional patent application if you don't fall into those camps then i'd I'd recommend going in for a non-provisional or the full patent application that will get examined so with the provisional placeholder there are usually kind of two reasons why you do it one is for budgetary reasons and that's saying hey i got a cool idea i've got a great invention you know i need a bit more time to save up the budget to be able to afford the full thing but i'd like to get something in place while away such that i don't have you know an issue where somebody else comes along and takes the idea so that's kind of one motivation or reason that you're saying okay if i don't have the budget today but i'd like to get something in place i'll do the less expensive provisional patent application so i have a year within which to save up for it Another reason, I guess there's a, I said two, but there's probably more three. Another reason is if you're, if you're not sure how the marketplace is going, in other words, you're saying, hey, I think this is a good idea. I think it's worthwhile. I'd like to take a little bit of time to explore the marketplace, test it out, see if it's worthwhile to invest before I go after the full one. So even if you had the budget, you may say, hey, I'm not convinced of the marketplace, so I'm going to do the placeholder first and see how the market accepts it. The third reason is, is if you're saying, hey, what we're doing is we've got a really cool idea. We're doing a lot of innovation, a lot of testing, a lot of development. But we're, I'm not, you know, we're, we're while we're not having a, I don't know that we've landed on the finalized or the, or the full design, the first design that we wanted to go to marketplace. But on the other hand, we've created a lot of cool things and we don't want somebody to come along and see all the work that we've done and copy it. So while we're continuing to do that R&D and getting kind of that first generation product, We'll save it, we'll do a provisional, and then we'll come back to the non-provisional within that year and give us a bit more time to fully flesh out the R&D. So those are kind of the three main reasons why I would do a provisional. Usually if it doesn't fall into one of those camps, then I would say I'd go for a non-provisional in the sense that let's get a fully fleshed out application. It's one where it will have greater weight for investors or for you know people who want to acquire it or license it or anything else. And then it also gets the process going for examination so you can get a, a, a determination as a patentability and get some more insight there. So that's a little bit of how I weigh it. It's always a, you know, a bit of a balancing. It depends on your circumstance and your situation, but it gives you a bit of insight. Um, with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up the podcast. And now if you, John, or anybody in the audience ever has any other questions about intellectual property, um, feel free to uh, grab some time with me. Just go to strategymeeting.com. We're always happy to chat and always happy to strategize and help with your intellectual property. With that, thank you again, John, and wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thanks, Devin. I appreciate it.